0: Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought provoking interviews with world leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm very excited to be talking with Sharon Koshi, a CFRE and the Director of Development at Des Moines Performing Arts in Iowa State, USA. Sharon serves on numerous boards and is a global board member for the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Sharon is also a certified AFP Master Trainer and is an internationally recognized speaker, author and thought leader in the nonprofit sector. Sharon, welcome.
1: Thank you, th- thank you so much for having me.
0: So to get started, tell us about the beginning of your fundraising career. What were some key lessons you learned in those early years?
1: Sure. So uh, like most people, I was an accidental fundraiser. I was doing uh, other work um, and uh, got kind of pulled into doing some fundraising work by by friends. I actually was uh, the equivalent of a chugger in the UK, Um when I first got out of kind of high school and in and, and through college, um, I went door to door raising funds for organizations like the Sierra Club and uh, human rights campaign and uh, and other causes and uh, didn't really I, I thought of that more of a summer job. Um, that was a good time to spend time with friends and then it turned out that I was pretty good at it, uh, so I got promoted and then that took me to different places around the country and. Um, and then got into other work. I didn't really think of that as a career, um, but then I got into some other work and then um, I was asked to write a grant for an organization and that grant turned out to be successful and some people spoke into kind of my career path and said, this might be a good role for you to do. What if we got you some help with a mentor and some resources? Um, and so really, I think the, the things that I learned are things that are probably applicable to most people, which is that if you try to go at it alone and try and figure it out yourself, you're going to struggle. And I certainly did as I um, as I started out. And uh, having an idea of a proven pathway is certainly helpful. But I would say the biggest mistake that I made was really um, coming up with ideas that other people had and trying to apply it to my own circumstances. I saw something work somewhere else and just tried to, you know, take that idea and apply it in my uh, situation and it rarely, if ever, worked. And so that got me a little frustrated and a bit off track. And it wasn't until I sort of realized, oh, you, you can't just copycat what other people are doing that I did that I got onto the right track.
0: Wow, great start! Um, and for the past five years, you've served as the director of development for Des Moines Performing Arts. Uh, tell us about what your role entails day to day.
1: Sure. So, in general, as the as the head of uh, the fundraising department there, my job is to manage the team and uh, to uh, to grow our contributed revenue. So, um, our team originally was was five people and then throughout the pandemic a lot of things have changed uh we have lost almost half of our our team members uh due to to pay cuts and furloughs and those types of things um but uh our we have a group of really dedicated donors, um, between five and 6,000 of them who support the organization and have been incredibly loyal through all of this. So on a day-to-day basis in, in the past, and hopefully uh, soon in the future, we will uh, move, we kind of, um, We have a certain set of performances that happen throughout the year. Um, So we're engaging with donors throughout those events, but then when those events aren't happening, we're connecting with our existing donors and then also um, looking for new donors to be part of the, the DMPA family. Right now, as you can imagine, it's a little bit different. We have uh, no performances right now, but we've just announced a few to come later this uh, this fall. So we're excited about that. Um, but right now, most of our work with our donors has been completely online, and you know, managing our team and uh, and you know working uh, remotely has been the biggest sort of challenge. But uh, the day to day responsibility. So we're still fundraising. We're just doing it in a very very different way.
0: Yeah, and I think that. Um largely answers my next question around what have been some of the biggest challenges you've faced as um, in your role but how devastating has COVID been I mean what areas of fundraising have been most effective most affected sorry Uh,
1: so so the fundraising has been incredibly uh, it's been a challenge and the the financial ramifications have certainly been devastating Um, we've we've Lost more than $13 million in revenue. Um, in the, the past, um, the bulk of our revenue came from earned income through ticket sales, which is how most performing arts centers operate. And um, it, a significant portion comes through contributed revenue, but the model of the organization is designed to function with a strong ticket buyer part of the of the budget, so when that went away the the organization had to survive exclusively on whatever donations we brought in um, and the and then there was obviously the worry of whether those donations would continue in the same form so um So to answer the first question about kind of the, the overall, uh, the overall fundraising, it has been a challenge, but one that our donors have met and, uh, and certainly exceeded our expectations. We, 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 sort of anticipated that there would be a more significant decrease in donations and there certainly were some uh, particularly from some individual donors, but mainly from corporate and other foundation donors who uh, were prioritizing the pandemic or basic needs and because we weren't open, it was hard for them to allocate funding to to us and we're hopeful that that will resume here in the near future um but i will say that the one kind of bright spot has been our individual donors that's what we leaned into as soon as the pandemic happened so uh on march 17th our governor here um ordered all of the facilities closed and so we all had to go home and it was on that day that we sat down and and developed our strategy of staying close to our individual donors. We started reaching out to them individually, calling them and checking on how they were doing. Um, And we've continued that for the last now 18 months uh, or so, however many months we're we're amidst that. And that's proven to be really powerful, just being able to connect with donors, let them know honestly and transparently and authentically the the difficulties that the organization's having um, and what that means for the future. And um, as I said, those individual donors responded. Uh, They stepped up and uh, some of them gave more or extra um, and many more just continued to give even though they weren't attending shows or uh, being able to participate in the um, in the arts as they normally have so that's really been you know honestly the, the biggest bright spot for all of us
0: yeah, well, it's, I'm glad to hear that there's a bit of a bright spot in all this darkness. It sounds like an absolute terrible time. Um, and it's very sad to hear organisations like Des Moines going through this, the Performing Arts Centre. Um, so talking about happier times, so we'll say pre-COVID, what would you say has largely contributed to the success of Des Moines Performing Arts fundraising efforts over the last five years?
1: So I, I will say first and foremost, the fundraising is a success of the overall organization. It's a, a, a organization that's been around now for 41 years and has built a, a trust with the community to bring in the best shows and to treat people well, uh, to engage them with the art that is happening on the stage. And so, um, the whole team plays a part in lifting the um, the community or bringing the community along through that process. So people, uh, when I say I, I love my job and going to work at this organization, um, it's rare that you ever um, go to a show or to a performance and you see, you know, in the before times, you would see thousands of people and um, and they're all happy. They're all smiling. They love coming out. Even if they didn't particularly prefer, prefer the performance, they loved being there. They loved being with whoever they were with and and sharing that experience with them. So it's a great place in that regard uh, and unique among other kind of fundraising elements um, where sometimes, you you know, you see some um, some rough stuff. And so we get to be on the good side of fundraising, which um, is is nice and, and uplifting on, on, that, uh, on that front. Um, I will say that you know when the organization is able to bring in the best of Broadway um, and these world-class performances, it makes it easier to do my job. Um, but one of the big changes that our team made five years ago was to disassociate the fundraising aspect the fundraising strategy from the ticket buying strategy and this is particular this is a more unique kind of approach uh than what's out there normally Normally in a theater or a performing arts center, um, they will push into the strategy of connecting you deeper into a particular performance by saying, you know, if you give us um, a, a donation, you'll be able to get better seats, or you'll be able to get perform uh, get access to tickets before the, um, the performance goes on sale to the public, or you'll get to go backstage or something like that. And these are all built in to the way in which they do their fundraising, so you'll see kind of acquisition packs that are sent out in the mail and said, you know, come uh, give us uh, a donation and you'll be able to get tickets to Hamilton before anyone else and be able to buy more tickets to Hamilton. The problem is that that works well when people love the show, but when they don't and they don't have a show that they're familiar with. Um, or they just don't like for whatever reason, not everyone likes every show, and that's totally fine. When they don't like that show, then they stop giving. And so, what we saw in our donor history with the data was this sort of EKG model of giving, where people would come in, they would give some money, they got their access benefits, and then they used them, but then they went away, they stopped giving um, when they didn't prefer or didn't know about the show um and so we we pulled that back to really talk about the um the value of having the arts in our community um independent of any particular show so we stopped putting out acquisition packs towards particular shows um we still do offer some of those donor benefits as i mentioned before that other theaters do like priority access to tickets or um, we might take someone backstage or to meet an artist or something like that. But we flipped the model and use that as a surprise and delight as a way to thank our donors for what they're doing to preserve the arts in our community or to um, promote arts education in the community, to help out kids, um, to be able to make the arts more accessible um, in in our community. And because people have bought into that approach, or I I shouldn't say everyone has, there are certainly some people who still give uh, because they want access to Hamilton tickets, and we understand that. But for most people, they because they believe in the cause, they're more likely to continue to give. And of course, as I mentioned before, we saw that happen through the pandemic where we couldn't offer them Access to tickets, we couldn't offer them backstage uh, with actors or uh, or anything like that. But they they knew what we were doing, and when we shifted some of our um, programming for kids to virtual, that's what they they we were still on mission from their perspective. We were doing what they uh, asked us to do with their with their kind gifts, um, and so that was that was sort of the big thing that we did uh, five years ago that. I believe now has really kind of transformed the fundraising culture in our organization and our approach.
0: Wow. That's incredible. It sounds like you're almost ready for it when it came. So well done to you.
1: (laughs) I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't go that far, but we, we were very, very happy that um, the transition for our donors, wasn't one that was super jarring. We didn't have to sell them essentially on a, on a whole different concept and we didn't have to apologize for our our uh, continued ask. Uh, I saw lots of arts organizations, unfortunately, have to go to their donors and apologize because they, you know, they received gifts that they couldn't fulfill. They couldn't do what they were uh, promised to do because they weren't giving out, um, you know, souvenir programs. They weren't giving out um, access to, to seats because they couldn't sell the seats. They couldn't have those performances. So our messaging became a whole lot easier um, and a whole lot more seamless. We didn't have to spend enough time and money reframing our communications with our donors. We were able to just say, you trusted us to continue to provide the arts in our community. And that's exactly what we're going to do. And here's how we're going to do that. And, uh, and they got it and they, they stayed with us, which is uh, amazing all its own. So, I mean, certainly we don't take any of those gifts for granted, but we're grateful that they, um, that they continue to support us in the ways that, the, that they did.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I liked how you mentioned earlier that you emphasized the importance of using the uh, the data to see that. So I'm really looking forward into going into that part of the interview as well. Um, but as the leader of your organization's fundraising and development efforts, what is your
1: leadership style like and how do you get the best out of your team? Um, so I think the, the best thing to get the best out of your team is to let your team do their best uh, to get out of their way. Um, So I am absolutely blessed with amazing fundraising teammates who are, are, they completely have my trust. Uh, They are smart, they're competent. um, And both of them are incredible at what they do. So um, my job is to facilitate what they need to what they have seen and what they need to get done um, in the in the fundraising process so we talk about overarching strategy we sit down for a week um, in the before times at least we would sit down um, for a week and kind of map out what is our strategy for the year what does this look like what are the things and and we have this philosophy of zero based strategy of where we pretty much take everything that we've done uh, and pull it off the table and anything that goes back on the table require actually we put them up on a wall but in order to put it up on the wall we have to justify it with data with you know, why we're doing it. So we never get into the pattern of saying, well, we did that last year, let's do it again. And they are really smart about saying, here's why this worked. And here's how we approach uh, those types of things. But ultimately, my job every single day is to get up and make sure that these people are able to do their best work and remove the barriers that make it more difficult for them to find joy and fulfillment in what they're doing. So we We meet regularly over Zoom now to kind of talk through what it is that we see happening you know this week, and um what are the challenges that they might face and how I can lean into that process to uh to help facilitate what they need to get done and that's really that's that's it <laughs> honestly it's uh it's very involved on the part of um the the teammates um they're they're sort of expected to bring their expertise and their strengths to the table and to um, consistently challenge the, the group dynamic, but particularly me, right? So uh, uh, we don't go into meetings saying, I know what needs to be done and I'm going to, you know, encourage you to do this. We collectively cast an overarching vision for the year, but then we all coordinate to get the job done with each person focusing on their own kind of specialties.
0: Yeah, that's really well put. Um, And it sounds like you're a big team player, which is always refreshing to hear. Um, And as I mentioned in the introduction, you've developed your own fundraising and development models. And uh, this actually once took a struggling organization from being a five-figure organization to seven figures in revenue. Can you give us an overview of this model and why it's been so effective?
1: yeah absolutely so as i mentioned before one of the biggest mistakes that fundraisers do that i see all the time when i'm coaching or consulting is they're trying to apply the fundraising strategy of some other organization or they found something on google that they think is a good idea and applying it to their organization so the the (laughs) there's sort of i'm happy to go through the process but i want to offer your listeners the caveat which is there there isn't a you know, three step, do this, and you'll raise $5 million. Um, What it really comes down to is understanding how your organization's DNA works and how there's a strategic output that you want to see happen, which is in this case, a growth in revenue. And there are steps that you can take that you can create smaller chunks, of that overarching goal in order to do that. But it really requires um, focusing on a limited number of strategies, right? And and there's a really good book called uh, Essentialism by Greg McEwen, which talks about how we really need to have one priority and uh the problem that we see in fundraising all the time is that the strategy is this laundry list of checklist of do this 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 and this and what ends up happening is that the organization or the individual gets mired in all of the details in all of the the you know individual trees and their heads down so much they're not seeing the strategic output. So that's the kind of overview. But the kind of three-step approach is really to step back and to look at how the organization is structured. What are its strategic strengths? What are its strategic weaknesses? And uh, what is the data telling you? So as we talked about before, data was really important five years ago when I stepped into this role in understanding. What does is, what is our donor makeup look like? Um, and there were those who spoke into that process to say, well, you know, we're not doing so great in this area. What if we did, what if we tried to to advance that, to get some growth in this area that we're weakest at? That's not my philosophy, that's not my approach. I, I tend to look at in this first area, where are the strategic strengths and how we how can we put gasoline on that fire to push forward? So in the case of the, the uh, example that you mentioned, we saw a strategic growth area in foundations and in, um, in grants. And that was where we had some bits of success, but it really wasn't actualized. And so when, where we were able to, um, the organization had a very uh, well-developed program that could raise a lot of money in grants. And so when we shifted our focus, instead of looking what the board and other people wanted to look at, which was growing individual donors, we said, no, we're going to look at corporate donors and foundation donors and push forward on that strategy. And that's where a bulk of the new revenue came from. So the second, so we pull back, we look at our data, we look, we understand the strategic well, um, the strategic strengths and weaknesses of the organization. And from my vantage point, we you know, advance the, the uh, strategic strengths. And then we implement or execute on that process. And as I mentioned, we're breaking down the, um, if it's a seven-figure goal, how do we move from you know, $50,000 in revenue to $100,000 in revenue or $500,000 in revenue with our eye towards how does this advance us to the million goal, for example. What a lot of organizations do incorrectly is they're moving incrementally, but only in an incremental fashion. And there's a really good book. Another good book is called Mission Impact by Dr. Rob Sheehan. And he talks about this in the, um, in the nonprofit sector, but he gives the example of the bullet train in Japan, where the engineers were challenged to move, uh, to develop a train that would, would go from the top of Japan to the bottom of Japan in three hours. And those engineers, they failed. Uh, they they completely and utterly failed. They weren't able to build a train that could get from one end of Japan to the other in three hours. It took three hours and 48 minutes. Um, and on the flip side, when the Americans were building a train, they were trying to get from place to place. They didn't really see that advantage. And so now we we don't really have bullet trains um, here in the States. And you can see how, when you when you look at a $5 million goal, and you only raise a hundred thousand, you might view that as a failure. But what you're actually doing is building those blocks to be able to get to that $5 million goal if that's your overall mindset. And if you fail, if you end up at $4 million, that's not a problem, right? You still you still moved an organization from 50,000 to 4 million or two and a half million, these are all good things. But, um, but Dr. Sheehan talks about that as setting these almost unattainable goals um, instead of just these achievable goals that we're, we're comfortable with and we we look good because we made our um our numbers we made our mark he says let's challenge ourselves with this goal that probably shouldn't be a goal it shouldn't make sense uh it would be almost too hard for us to get there and if we can figure out the way to get to that goal then we can, uh, then we can really, um, if we fail, which we expect to fail, we've really advanced the organization in a significant way. So that's sort of the second phase of, of that process. And then the third phase is really a, um, a kind of a gut check. So as you, as you have these, um, these breakpoints in your organization one of the things that happens with strategy all the time is that the conditions on the ground change you have different people you have a big win or you have a big loss and so um amongst all of this that's why i think it's important to re-evaluate that original strategic framework and to say does this actually makes sense so a lot of times organizations will have a fundraising plan that's for a year or three years um i'm famous for saying you you sort of need like a 40-year fundraising plan uh that you check in on every year and you re reset um and you're rebuilding what the next phase looks like every year as you approach that so that's sort of that third phase of in the midst of the execution, as you're doing the execution, you are revising and reframing how you're moving forward. Because let's say, for example, in five years, you get to seven figures in income. Do you sit back and celebrate? No, of course not. You are resetting what is our goal. I'm not saying that your goal needs to to be a monetary increase all the time. It can be. That might be how you operate. But you might look at that set of goals and say, this this needs to change now that we've reached this goal, what do we do differently? How are we approaching this differently? Uh, so it's really kind of keying into what are the important factors for the organization.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. And uh, yeah, well, you achieved seven figures, so you must have been shooting for eight figures, uh, but it's still a big one. Um, <laughs> and yeah, as I've said it before, you emphasize a lot about the importance of Data um, to make important decisions. So can you give us an overview of what you feel are the most important metrics to analyze and how you go about finding these metrics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I apologize for doing this again. But of course, there's a caveat to data as well. and I'm sure your listeners are sick and tired of me saying that, but, um, please take your time. Take your time. <laughs> the the <laughs> challenge with data, particularly when it comes to nonprofits is that, um, I talk about it as the seven de- deadly sins of, uh, of data. And the one that's sort of the most pernicious is data gluttony, where we collect data, um, in this sort of hoarder mentality because we want all the data points and there aren't data points that actually drive decision-making, um, the, the, the next book that I'll suggest to your listeners is a very new book. It just came out a week ago or so, and it's called Noise, um, and it's by Dr. Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winner. Um, he talks about that the, there's so much data the, these days that what we lose track of is actual what I call signal or direction, so amidst all of the data that's out there we have all this noise, and it's impossible for us to make a decision. Or we make a decision based upon what we think is the right metric or the right data point, um, and it really actually isn't. Or there are other causal factors that go into driving that data point. So I will say that for us, the the main metric when it comes to donors and fundraising that we use most often is lifetime value. So we look at we we know for a fact that our donors. Um, have we we've mapped out a donor journey and we know that our donors uh tend to at, at DMPA for example they have a certain lifetime with us um we have many donors who have given to us for 20 30 years but we have some donors who give for a a year or something like that and so we map out mathematically what is the what is their expected donor lifetime value and then our goal is to raise the donor lifetime value from a fundraising metric over time um and dr adrian sargent says that if we can raise our um our retention rate for example by 10 percent, we can affect the lifetime value of a donor by twice as much so we know that there are certain steps that we can kind of go through to move that lifetime value number up um because at its core it's this operates on a very simple principle which is that it's more expensive to get a new donor than it is to keep an existing one so our goal is you know as much as possible we want to keep our existing donor family intact we know that some of them um, are are going to um be lost for for whatever reasons Uh, but as much as we can keep those donors in we know that that is a good use of our resources and by doing so we increase the overall long-term revenue for the organization so that's just from a fundraising perspective um but when we look at any particular process the data points don't necessarily drive directly to lifetime value so that's what I mean with like we have to be sort of cautious and thoughtful about how we think about data um, you can you, you can micromanage data down to you know number of visits number of hours on the phone number of you know proposals sent out which could drive revenue it may have a correlation to uh, overall revenue. But there are all kinds of things that go into play with those other kinds of metrics. And I'm not even saying that lifetime value is the best metric. It's the best one I found so far to measure what's right for our organization. But it might there might be a better metric out there or one that fits better for your organization um, that will will serve your needs better. What I would just, again, caveat is when you're measuring something you are placing an an extraordinary amount of value on that thing and because of that it's going to drive the activities that you do but also it reflects the values of you as a leader or you as a staff member and how you're interacting with that so a lot of times we see like monetary goals for a fundraising shop and i would challenge anyone who places that at the top to say that this this then tells us a lot about your organization. And it could lead to us doing untoward things, things that not cheating or lying or something like that. But things maybe it does. Of course, that does happen in in charities all the time. But I'm not saying that of of any of, of you or your listeners or anything like that. I'm saying it might lend itself to a hyper focus on dollars raised in a way that's unhealthy for the organization or for individual team members. And I think we see that then turn into people leaving the profession or people being frustrated with being managed that way. Um, when in reality, you, we should kind of reframe what our kind of values are and then what are we analyzing around those values.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think, yeah, keep data simple. I think, you know, know your metrics, don't focus on the minor metrics. And I think that's really good advice. I mean, time on website, as you say, I mean, what do you do with that data? There's you know, is too long good? Is too short better? You just never know. And as part of um, the lifetime value metric and that being a focus, what are some of the ways that you and your team show appreciation to your donors as part of a retention strategy that um, ties into that lifetime value metric?
1: Absolutely. So one of the most important things that we've done, and this has started with our entire so our entire team is new um, to the organization as of five years ago so everyone has been here less than less than five years or so you know right around then. Um, But uh, the the kind of main philosophy that we have around donor retention and showing value to donors is to treat every donor the same by that i mean we recognize donors who give more of course in different ways but every donor receives the same level of gratitude for their gift and thanks for their gift so i don't have an example here today because i haven't stopped by the office in, in a couple of days but every donor receives a, a handwritten thank you note from me no matter how much they gave if it's a dollar it's a hundred thousand dollars or more they're receiving a hand Written thank you note. Um, we call every single new donor um, the as soon as they make their gift within a, a reasonable amount of time uh, to thank them for their gift, and then um, as much as possible, we're trying to meet with donors um, as as often as we can. Um, so we'll identify individual donors that we can um, have a longer or more significant conversation with there are other things that we do with donors like you know we put their names in the playbill we you know send them um a thank you card around uh, the holidays we'll do other special donor appreciation events um so being an event-based organization we don't do a lot of event-based fundraising that doesn't totally make a lot of sense but um one of the benefits of being a performing arts center is that um people get to know each other they they like spending time time with one another um, because they're at those shows and they're coming to our venue. So we, we have the benefit of being able to kind of see them. Um, we have this, div- we have this technology um, in our organizations where we scan tickets and when a ticket is scanned, we can get a, an alert on our phone that says that Jake has entered the building on the east wing and we can meet you there. Um, and so sometimes we have like a little gift for you or something like that. Sometimes it's just, you know, a welcome um, of some kind to say, hey, Jake, just wanted to, to put a face to a name and just meet you and thank you for your your uh, your gift. Um, we have done things at their seats, um, but um, we like I said, we don't do a whole lot of we don't do a gala, we don't do a banquet or anything like that, um, but we have done like a event on the stage where people can come and they can mingle and have a, a cocktail and a snack or something like that. Um, and then, you know, other things that I mentioned that like are surprise and delight things um, we will if someone is uh, is slated to come to a show will um, we might give them a souvenir from the show, or we might bring them backstage and give them a backstage tour, or something like that. Um, Whatever is within our control. So there's fortunately lots of ways to show our appreciation to donors. But the the more personal we can make it, the that that's our that's our goal. That's our mentality. How can we uh, really show gratitude to these folks and really show them the impact of their giving? So one of the things that we do do that's I guess sort of events related. Um, Whenever we have children's programming in our venue, we will invite donors uh, to come in and sit with the kids, not because of the The programming is something that they would love necessarily, you know, want to see, but they get to see the kids interact with the show. And uh, that's one of the things I tell them As we we're, we're sitting, um, having a snack before the show is to say the the thing on the stage is really probably not of interest to you, but As those lights come down and then the show begins, I want you to pick out a kid in that audience and watch that kid's face. Watch that kid sitting next to you, because when their eyes light up, you get to know that you made that possible for that kid. And so we we try and let them see kind of the, the value that they have provided to a kid or somewhere in the community or something like that as much as possible when we can have kids write the thank you notes or um, we can send videos or pictures or something like that from from people who benefited we love doing those types of things
0: yeah that's great to hear i'm still trying to get my head around writing a handwritten note to all new donors that must take it's a lot of time to do that (laughs) it
1: takes it takes quite a bit of time i have uh i have a whole slew of pens here that i i go through uh, a box of pens pretty much every couple of months
0: This next question is often one to really really difficult to pinpoint, Uh, but during the planning stages of an upcoming event, I mean, how are you and your fundraising team strategic in this area?
1: So part of that is, you know, what we've talked about before with regard to our zero-based strategy concept. We we sit down um, typically in the summer when we're a little slower, obviously things are different right now, but um, we sit down in the summer and we talk about kind of the overarching vision for the year um, and put to, to um, put to paper our, our strategy. We have sort of an overarching long, long term strategy that we're looking at uh, and sort of mile markers that are coming up that we want to focus on with regard to plan giving or perhaps like an upcoming capital campaign or something like that. We'll put those out there. And what do we need to do to build build towards something like that? That. Um, but when it comes to the year that we're focused on, as I mentioned, we we take everything that we did before off the table and then we justify putting those things in with regard to how important is that to us as, a, as an organization, as a team, and what does the data say about doing particular things um, with, re- you know, whether it's a mailing or an event that we held or or something like that. The other thing that we have done is um, we've allocated a portion of our budget to what I call a failure fund. Um, So what is strategic um, is really, from my vantage point, what is strategic is learning the mistakes in a controlled way. the The book that I would recommend. I'm i I love reading books and and applying them to uh, particularly to fundraising. Uh, but there's a book by by Dr. Annie Duke who used to be a poker player, but then of course is brilliant and um and got her PhD in psychology. Um, she wrote a book called um, Thinking in Bets, and it merges kind of her poker playing idea with um, how we approach um, strategy and strategic thinking. And uh, so. What we do is is think in the same kind of bets, knowing that we might be able, we might thing um, that's that we research, that we think about, but we'll allocate an amount of money towards figuring out will this work. Our anticipation here is that of those bets, we will lose some of them. And that's okay. That's, it's not just like we, we um, are comfortable with losing. Our expectation is that we will lose more of those bets than we will win. But in losing, we will understand the, the framework better. We will understand what bets are more successful. And so we have a very iterative process to strategy, which is taking these bets and our prior learnings and putting those together to form the next thing that we do. And we're putting most of our budget, most of our money into the things that work, but we're always figuring out what's the new thing that won't work.
0: No, it's very interesting. I like how you put it as a failure fund. That's very interesting. And you've talked a lot about the pandemic, how it's affected, sorry, your fundraising efforts and, and given glimpse into how you've innovated over those times. What important trends are you seeing emerge that fundraisers should potentially be aware of?
1: Well, crypto is certainly one of them. Um, it's it's hard to ignore some of the um, the larger economic factors that have gone into that. Whether people are serious about crypto or like uh, probably you and me just throwing uh, a few bones to figure out like is this going to be a thing? I I sold my I bought Dogecoin at like five cents and then I had it automatically set to sell at ten because uh, I was like oh if I double my money that's great and then it hit like sixty or something like that and I was. Texting some friends like ah oh, I should have kept it or whatever but um, I think cryptocurrency is one of those things that is uh, is here to stay ish I believe that um, a lot will have to do with what governments do with regard to cryptocurrency and how that plays out um, it's you know some some countries are banning the use of cryptocurrency which makes it really difficult and dicey uh, I don't know if that's going to be a long term trend but I would stay kind of up to date or focused. On what's happening there, I think the broader economy is something that is uh, is certainly a a work in progress trend. So one of the things that we're seeing right now is global inflation rising, um, and inflation has its own effects on what is happening out there in the world, um, and and so there's an economic infrastructure that fundraisers just need to be wary of, and how that might impact donors, um, both through the pandemic, but as we get further and further away from the worst parts of the pandemic, hopefully how that will lend itself to kind of different um, means of of working. And the third trend that I think is very important for fundraisers to pay attention to is how work from home, how the pandemic has changed, how we interact with our donors, how we interact with one another. and there are elements of the new normal that will change how we do our jobs. Um, so there were many organizations that had been laser focused on, you know, you need to be in the, the seat and doing this work in an office. And now a lot of that has changed um, for not just the fundraiser, but also the donor. So being comfortable with Zoom technology and, and things like that are, are going to be important. Um, the, the last thing I would say that sort of overarchs everything that's happening is how organizations are responding or not responding to diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. Um, I think the last year has heightened our, uh, uh, rightly heightened our sensitivity to important social issues that are happening around us. Um, some people are, um, are Leaning into that and uh, and really investigating how organizations and their fundraising practices uh, are ought to change. And I believe that that is an important trend that should be continued to research uh, to be the source of research and uh, discussions. I don't think that there are simple answers here, but it's important for us to continue to have those discussions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And back to you now. So you've served on numerous boards, you're a CFRE, uh, you're an AFP master trainer, amongst other of your achievements. Um, how have these commitments which sit outside your day job helped develop you as a fundraising professional?
1: So the thing that I say almost every time I teach uh, other fundraisers is that my day job is to work as a fundraiser for an organization. But I I regularly spend time teaching other fundraisers here in, in Iowa. And the reason is because fundraising is part of a larger ecosystem that includes all of our donors. So I, I, by that, I mean the donor that gives to the food bank, that gives to the botanical gardens, that gives to the zoo also give to us, so your donors are also my donors, and my donors are also your donors and this is the part that fundraisers fail to understand um, a, a lot of times and and because of that they are they're protective of their donors in a way that's unhealthy and inappropriate, but they're also um, they' they also are not thoughtful of how, some fundraisers of course, are not thoughtful of how their actions have either positive or negative externalities to donors that are in the community. And I don't think this is just true for a local community like our organization and, and kind of where we interact. When people in general don't understand or don't appreciate philanthropy and generosity it makes them less likely to give to charity and that's the problem that every fundraiser is is created to solve our job is is designed for a particular organization but our larger calling is to make generosity more attractive because if more people are giving then we're all better off so the short-sightedness of saying well i got to i got to figure out how to get these donors to give to my organization Sort of important i understand that's how you get paid but the reality is that if donors to the zoo are treated poorly and stop giving to the zoo that's also my problem because that donor doesn't want to write a check to my organization they just stop they don't want to give as much or they don't want to give any more which would be horrendous so all of the things that i do with regard to teaching or credentials or whatever i I'm no expert in anything, I've gone down a path and I can share which paths I've gone down and I've walked the wrong way several times and walked back with the help of others and I would be happy to share what we've walked through to hopefully avoid some errors for for you, but it's more of a joint learning experience. I learn as much um, when I'm teaching than I do just doing my job in my office. So uh, it's a great opportunity to understand other organization's perspectives the way in which they approach um, their fundraising strategy or interacting with donors and we're all better when we all we're all better
0: yeah no, that's a really great way of putting it when you look back at your career what stands out as one of your most successful campaigns to be part of and what went into making it a success
1: so you know every uh, every organizational campaign that has been successful certainly has um, it's been great, you know, it's always great when you when you reach a goal. Um, as, as I mentioned before, um, we always tend to, at least for the last 10-15 years, I've always set these almost unattainable goals. So I'm very comfortable with failure, because that's the world that I have forced myself to live in is sort of this consistent failure. Um, so even a successful campaign isn't actually successful. Um, what I would say is the things that I'm more most proud of, which I find um, more joy in and success in, is when an organization I'm working with um, has this moment of clarity where they they get it and they understand, oh, I, I should stop copying what somebody else is doing and I should develop my own thing and I'm doing this one thing and it's actually doing what I want it to do. Um, whether that's raising the right amount of money or including more donors or you know some whatever that is um that is really really meaningful to me and then the other meaningful part is seeing other people grow into their own kind of more confident uh more successful selves so um i've had uh, the pleasure of helping a couple of other people on my team get their own CFRE and so we walk through that process together um, and that's given me a lot of joy and, and you know however much value you put in these credentials it, you know it's really up to you but I, I think for that for each individual person they put some value into the time and effort it took to things. And so when I see someone else have that, um, that moment of confidence, that moment, or not necessarily moment, but that that first moment, because they're confident after that, Um, or when they honestly, when they find a new role that suits them, uh, I'm, I'm certainly one to um, be aware enough to say that not everybody is going to stay in their same role forever and ever in the same organization. So uh, I was working with someone just last week, who Left their job, and actually, she's not giving notice until next week, so it'll be fine that you don't air this until later. But she's she's taken on a new role that's more significant, and that excitement is that's the success, really, is just somebody finding a role that that fits them. Um, and and I'm super excited to see that kind of process happen.
0: Uh, and I think I think that speaks volumes of your leadership to reflect on that as your successful moments. So well done to you. And with over 20 years experience in the fundraising profession, what are you next striving
1: for? Uh, I am a uh, quintessential lifelong learner. I um, am dumber today than I will be tomorrow. And so I don't have necessarily particular career um goals or aspirations per se, um, what I'd love to do is just be better, um, a better version of, of who I am and to learn more. And um, I think there are things that I need to continue to learn with regard to my own leadership. Um, so the last book I'll mention is the one that's sitting right in front of me. I actually keep this on my desk at all times. It's uh, The Surprising Gift of Doubt by Mark Pittman. Um, and i uh, you know i use this book regularly clearly because it's sitting right here to figure out how to become a better leader um but um also to be you know to be a better fundraiser to understand how different things play into what our fundraising strategy and success looks like and and mark and i are actually um we've written an article about uh, the impact of slave economics on the charity and nonprofit sector and so with that, like we're continuing to learn about all the different things that we might not have thought of that affect our, um, our sector and so that sort of for me, is just being smarter learning new things. Um, and there may be other opportunities that uh, present themselves and I'll be happy to explore those when those happen but uh, until then, you know, just getting better. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's really well put as well. And we are down to the final question, Cherian. And and I just wanted to say quickly before then, thank you so much for coming on for Phil today, for sharing all your insight and knowledge. It's been a really great, we're coming up 50 minutes. So thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, my pleasure. I'm grateful for the opportunity.
0: So what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world?
1: That is an awesome final question. And I have to say it's the question that we all need to be asking ourselves. Um, The reality is that fundraisers have an amazing opportunity to change the world. They, they are change makers and they're facilitating that change um, in uh, in every organization out there. Um, What I think is amazing about the, the sector and the profession is that people have the um, have the opportunity to make a difference where they are and you're uniquely positioned to make that difference. So there are skill sets and experiences um, that you have already. There, there isn't someone who, the, who you can copy uh, to really succeed. And I've learned that in the fundraising practice part, but as fundraisers, as yourself, um following the path of someone else won't lead you to success you need to unleash your true self and your true potential and what you know to be true guided by you know your values and your experience and that that might mean degrees and certifications it might mean working in different organizations but um i just want to say personally thank you for the work that you're doing because every organization at one point didn't exist and is now sustained because of someone like you that's in that spot doing that work uh, to make the world a better place. So thank you for having me on the, the program and thank you to each of you, the listeners who are doing amazing work and I encourage you to just keep at it, uh, do great work and, um, and be your awesome selves.
0: Wow, incredible sign off. and thank you so much.
1: My pleasure, thank you.